Between the Chapters, a weekly podcast discussion focusing on a chapter of the book, 25 Years of EdTech, written by Martin Weller. Here's your host, Laura Pasquini. Welcome. We're at Chapter 12, Video, 2005. And I'm here with Lee scaler Bassett. And 2005 seems so long ago now that I look at this, Lee. Uh, how are you? How's it going? <laughs> I'm okay. Now you just made me depressed about 2005. Like, just, <laughs> was that really 15 years ago? That was the year I actually years. got married. That was the year I got married. That was the year that we moved to the States for my husband to start his PhD. So like, it, it's just, there, there's the personal life that's happening in that year. And then also the like, oh yeah, YouTube started. Like that's, that's a thing. Um, 2005 yeah, no, is a big year. I'm with yeah. you on that. I'm truth be told, we're both the two Canadians on this podcast that moved to America. Um, I was in the US then and worked overseas in Europe for an American institution back then when my French was strong. Uh, en Francais, I worked in um, Nantes and Paris. And uh, oh, nice. yeah, this is when I started like my online life of blogging. We've talked about this before, personally, you and I. Uh, so yeah, yeah. yeah so. We're going to talk about how video didn't kill the video star in this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this chapter, Martin wrote, uh, talks about like how video became present in learning and part of it, the educational technology aspect of it. The biggest jump he talks about right away is YouTube. So and some examples I'll just read out from the chapter and you can listen to that full chapter is at the time YouTube was 62% of the users are male. 80% of the YouTube users are from outside the US and millennials at the time preferred this over traditional television. So YouTube came on the scene and has been some form of um, not only education piece, but just leisure and watching and going through. And so I don't know what you thought about the start of YouTube itself um, or how you used it, Lee, but if you, what, what were your thoughts just in general before we jumped to the learning aspect of it? I mean, I think that all of this sort of stuff sort of happened. And again, like it, it, I think about YouTube and thinking back 2005, that's when moved to the States. Facebook was just starting up as well. Mm -hmm. I started, I only, you know, the next chapter is Web 2.0. I got on Twitter in uh, 2000, when did I get? 2010, early 2010. Mm -hmm. And so there's that five-year period between 2005 and 2010. That's when I had both my kids. Um, I finished my dissertation. I defended my dissertation. I started adjuncting. Um, so I'm sort of like, yeah, I guess all that stuff happened at the same time. I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't have a lot of, of memory of it until, because everything was just moving really quickly as well, um, just in terms of like life. You know, I, I think I was still in the mindset at that point that I was going to be, was going to be an academic, right? Mm -hmm. And so my focus was on, I'm going to finish my dissertation. I'm going to adjunct. I'm going to do these things. But I still remember, I remember what this is a moment during this period. It wasn't 2005. It was probably around 2007 or eight where I had a student write a paper or a student of mine. I didn't have her write it. She suggested it. She wrote a paper and she was comparing what was going on in the novel to the jazz music that was also being produced at that time and um and was linking in her in her um uh submission in her essay to clips on youtube of music of it being performed um and of course losing the richness of that if she had handed it in on paper right, right. 
Um, and, and then that really got me thinking about, well, how could we, how could students be communicating their knowledge differently and doing something like this, which is obviously a great essay, but like bringing the richness in of it, they're like, it's not, I just don't want to talk about the music. I want you to listen to the music while you're doing it, while you're reading this essay to be able to understand really what it is, what I'm saying. So I think that was probably my first introduction to YouTube as a possible educational tool. Right. Like yeah. I'm sure I used it to like look stuff up on how to do things or like watch movie trailers on it or something like that. But it was just sort of within that ecosystem of like, oh, this is something you can just watch online. Okay. Yeah, I think I I agree with like how Martin talked about there was such optimism at that time. So fifteen yeah. years ago things were bright. Um, in 2006, I moved back to Canada. I worked at University of Toronto and then Academic Advising Career Center. And I thought the possibilities of video were great for simple tutorials. And that's mm-hmm. what we use them. So like I was at a center where we uh, did web tutorials on like how to calculate your GPA or uh, what do I do with my life? Like what major should I pick? And like it was to introduce our li- learning library or career library. It was also to introduce like uh, how to set up a resume. So I found them as really c- great ways to introduce especially videos to showcase like simple frequently asked questions or self-help kind of things so my advising or career counseling could go deeper like I thought them as good starters and introductions to the place and so I like you had hopes for lots of different social media for that at the time and video was one that I thought for learning and I wasn't teaching and learning in the classroom at the time yet, but I thought about the possibility of it going along with e-learning to go, Oh, I could show them how to do something in a visual way and explainer way um, and make sense. And I thought like this chapter talks about, we have the possibility to democratize these resources that have kept behind some sort of paywall or pay for service or pay for someone else to produce this video clip. And that was the first part. Like I got my, first like mac thing at work and we proposed to pilot and create some of these videos so it was myself and some student workers uh, putting these together and figuring out the tools together and it was really us all in the sandbox doing this work at the time and production was like somewhat easier it's much easier now but it was like the learning curve wasn't as steep and we could figure it out um, and figure out how to present and I think that's where this chapter talks about everyone else who started using it for tutorials like Khan Academy or for ways you could share things like um, notes and books and things like that shifted to whose voices were present and video became really popular and I don't know if 2005 is when it happened in learning but I know like I thought 2006 and 7 is when I started piloting a couple things with video and I was just like wow this is amazing and I never saw like the other things down the down the dark rabbit hole what would come um, and platforms like YouTube um, and other spaces that how they would get used to promote other voices or misinformation and things like that yeah so my kids like that's all they watch now is YouTube. Like they, <laughs> right. they don't watch television. Um, I have to beg them to put down their phones to watch TV. Right. Like where I, re- I remember, um, you know, I remember growing up where it was like, turn off the TV. Right. Now I'm like, come on kids, put down your phones. Let's all watch TV together. Come on. Can we all just watch a TV show together? And you know, um, just the, the, the proliferations and the things that they watch, um, 
are, you know, like those on the unboxing videos mm-hmm. and um, playthroughs. That's what my son watches. He watches endless video game playthroughs. My daughter um, makes, uh, my daughter watches makeup tutorials and nail tutorials, you know, and, and they have the these, these vloggers who are, you know, one of the people, she's Canadian, actually, Simply Nailogical, based out of Ottawa, was doing nail art, and somebody suggested, hey, you should put these video tutorials up on YouTube. Now she has her own line of nail polish, mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, um, all of these kinds of things. And so it's it's really interesting how some of it is still about that around tutorials. Um, I'm trying to learn to sew right now, and let me tell you, YouTube has been, as you know, just a saving grace for me, where I'm like, how do I do? I don't understand French seam and I can read the directions, but I'm not mm-hmm. very good visually. So that the, the, the diagram doesn't make sense to me in two dimensions. So I watch it on YouTube and I'm like, Oh, okay. Now I understand. So I think there's still some of that there. I think it has been wonderful for community building online because there has been space for other voices, uh, particularly queer communities mm-hmm. um, in, in terms and, and, uh, you know, shared interests that uh, were marginalized in the past, um, you know, have gotten a lot more visible, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly wondering what the algorithm is suggesting um, to my kids and trying to like, we have a really open conversation where you know we want them to talk about the things that they've heard on youtube or that they've seen on youtube um to to try and just sort of have you know counter disinformation if there's any but if there's one good thing about both my children having adhd is that if they're not interested in it they just ignore it like literally like he's like no, this isn't a video game playthrough. This is, you know, you know, conspiracy theories. I don't care about conspiracy theories. Show me another playthrough. Like, so it's yeah. really, it, it's, it's really interesting sort of thing where, you know, I'm, I'm vigilant and we talk about it, but at the same time I watch the way my kids interact with it. And if it's not exactly what they're looking for, they literally don't care. And so, you know, it, it's been a, it's been an interesting window to see within 15 years, how my children you know, age 11 and 13 are consuming YouTube. So that's been really, really interesting. The possibilities with video are endless. And like this chapter doesn't even talk about the other things that are out now. So like I think of Vine back in the day what that was on Twitter. And I think about Instagram stories, which are also Facebook stories and moments. And then also TikTok now. And I work at a company that's having a new one launch in a few weeks. So like I think of the, oh. the ways that video just perpetuates our lives are ever growing and becoming normalized and democratized with small screens, right? So we have mobile phones, tablets, other devices that record. Every laptop now has a camera. That wasn't a thing back then. So. No, 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 no. Like, and I mean, um, even just getting the videos off, we still have old flip phones. Right. Um, because one of the first videos of my daughter after she was born is on my flip phone. But there was no way to get it off your flip phone at the time, right? Like, because you didn't have the bandwidth or the cellular power to be able to send it anywhere. So we just have this flip phone where it's just like, why do we still have this? Oh, because we have a video of my daughter on here. As you talk about flip phones, this chapter talked about flipped learning and we know um inverse learning, flipped learning, whatever you want to call it, uh, has been going on for a while and doesn't require videos per se, but there has been a push lately and 
this this chapter talks about um, how videos are started to be used for different courses and different practices for lectures. Um, what's not in this book that I thought we could talk a little bit about is uh, videos today in 2020. Video school, um, some people call it Zoom school, web conferencing is a thing and it's becoming a growing thing. And I don't, I don't know how I feel about always being watched. Like, I'm happy to talk to you, my friend, about this topic and chapter because I know you're pretty passionate about it. Um, so what's video like in learning today in your household, if you want to share? Yeah, no, and I think that this is one of the biggest changes as bandwidth has increased and computing capabilities have increased is, you know, in 2005 and right up until only a few years ago, um, it was all asynchronous, right? It's all asynchronous video. It's I'm going to record something, I'm going to upload it to YouTube and you're going to watch it later or whenever you want. Maybe there was some rare live streamed events, but really ultimately it was um, it was all asynchronous. I mean, that was the idea of the flipped classroom. Yeah. Um, but I mean, we've had asynchronous video as, for as long as we've had moving pictures. As soon as we had moving pictures, we had educational videos, movies, right? The, the mm -hmm. real, the film reel, right? We make fun of those old black and white educational um, videos or not videos, but like reels. Films. Now we yeah. Have film strips. Films. Thank you. Yeah, we've, films. <laughs> we've used the moving pictures for years. It just yeah. looks different and it's more uh, available these days. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Like we can, now you can make it with your phone, whereas not everyone could have made uh, an instructional film uh, back in the day. Um, but, but I think again, that biggest, that biggest uh, technology isn't just about the hardware in terms of anybody can make a video, but mm -hmm. now it's anybody can stream a video live. And so you end up with this new kind of, shift in pedagogy, or I should say lack thereof shift yeah. in pedagogy, where when COVID-19 happened, there was Zoom and everybody was like, great, I can just run my class the way I always have run it just over Zoom with synchronous video. And um, it, it, it didn't work right? It, it didn't work. Um, the, the faculty were exhausted. The students were exhausted. Everybody, um, it, in terms of accessibility, it didn't work because not everybody has access to the right amount of bandwidth to be able to stream videos. There was, again, this idea of surveillance. Everybody has to have their camera on. Um, everybody has to be looking at the screen at all times, right? No distractions in the background, all these kinds of rules and regulations. And it was really about um, control, right? Which on one hand, I can understand because this was an, a really traumatic experience for everyone. And one of the ways that faculty were coping was to try and control the things they felt they could or should be controlling, right. um, which is usually their classroom setting. And now their classroom setting is virtual. It's on Zoom. So this is, this is what we're going to use. We're going to use streaming video. Um, rather than taking the opportunity to use it to challenge their pedagogy and challenge their delivery methods um, for what was best for the given situation. 
Um, and so that, that was, that was something that why I sort of, when I pitched this, mm-hmm. I, I was pitching it and I sort of glibly said, I want to talk about how video is the worst thing that has ever happened to, uh, online learning or to learning. Um, not because I don't think video has this really strong potential, but I think video, particularly streaming video, live streaming video, synchronous video has become a crutch, yeah. right? Where we are using it to just recreate um, pedagogies that may or may not be effective uh, in a a virtual learning environment when we know that they are not effective in a virtual learning environment for online learning. Um, So it's really in the past few years become this crutch um, for trying to quote unquote recreate the live classroom experience. Video killed the teaching pedagogical star. Yeah, I'm with you. I um, you mentioned bandwidth as a technology thing and access point. I also think the cognitive bandwidth. Uh, we are all struggling because this chapter talks about it. We've become broadcasters, and no one's really trained unless they're teaching media and journalism on how to do that. And nor do we want people to be um, streaming on Facebook, on Twitch. Like there, there's some sort of performance aspect of it that's not always good for teaching and not for every style of teaching or um, even kind of materials or ways to teach and learn. Um, I think you're right. We've gone and said, let's hit record. I'm just going to lecture and use, there are some great tools um, that you could do that. Like I think of Panopto, I think about just capturing things, but why would you want to maybe live stream a three hour lecture when you want them to know one concept you could teach in a succinct way for five to 10 minutes and then stop the record and have a conversation. So like, I think there's other ways we could use video that you and I are using right now to record a podcast. It will only be audio, but we know that we can have that face-to-face meeting. Um, So video is apparent uh, when it's broadcasted, you do put yourself out there and um, the end of the chapter just loosely touches upon like issues that might come out there. So misinformation, trolls, privacy. And I also think when we live stream and broadcast, we always skip over um, accessibility and universal design. So are you making your class really multimodal? Are you downloading that video MP3 file and then getting a transcript and then putting closed captions? Are you also thinking about learners that have to maybe pick up and go because they can't always stream on like live or online? So can they download it? Is your classroom also portable. Those are the things that I think about that get lost with the, oh, I can just hit record and we're good. And is that it? Yeah. And I, I think about those very same things. I mean, one of my formative, again, experiences when I was teaching is when I went to Moorhead State, which is in, um, you know, in Appalachia, in Kentucky, and um, our service area are like the poorest zip codes in uh, in the country, right? This is rural Appalachia, and these are students, and not just um, not just in terms of of poverty, of which there was uh, quite a bit, but also just access, right? So even if your family was solidly middle or upper class in whatever town in Eastern Kentucky you happen to live in, um, you couldn't even purchase high-speed internet access, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it just wasn't available to you. You could get dial-up and that was it. And so I was excited about using technology and things like video in the classroom. And But then really quickly 
had to figure out workarounds because students would go home over the weekend and not have access to any of the things, any of the materials. Um, you know, they couldn't access the LMS, which is another chapter altogether. But I mean, just that, that larger question of bandwidth and access of like, if they can't even access the videos or like download even just a simple PDF, right? Or like right. upload the LMS, like have the LMS load properly. Like there's some real issues. And I think that that's something that a lot of people are finally concretely realizing with COVID-19, where it always existed as a abstract sort of thought, where it's like, yes, we know that there's a digital divide and we know that there are access issues, but until their students went home and were literally like, I got to go to the McDonald's parking lot, I've got to, you know, or, or wherever else, or I just can't have my camera on, or, you know, my laptop is fine for typing papers, but I cannot, it doesn't have the, the computing capacity to, to, you know, stream a video, to stream Zoom. Um, it became very, it, it became very evident in a way that, like I said, finally made it concrete for a lot of people in their heads, whereas conceptually they understood, but there, there was no impetus to really do anything about it. Um, because they didn't think, oh, that's not my students, though, right? Those aren't yeah. my students. The democratization of video has been good, but it's also uncovered the inequities, right? So we know that not every one of my students uses a laptop. Some use their phones to actually type papers. We know yep. that, yeah, there's not going to be access to um, streaming, or we should have the expectation they're on camera because they might have to literally like me hide in a closet to do some of the work or do things in a car because a baby is sleeping or, you know, like there's so many other ways that we've had to adjust our own home life. That's now also our work life. It's also our school life and compartmentalizing that is difficult. So I, you brought up a great point earlier is making people be on camera and look a certain way. And I, have never done that. Like in what I, I was like, you show up how you show up because yeah. we all have different things going on. And I, I think that expectation, um, there is kind of like a netiquette, uh, the virtual etiquette of, well, how are we going to show up in our class meetings? Or do I really want to control everyone and mute everyone coming in? Or do I maybe want to just record a shorter lecture and then have a time where we can converse and not be recorded and put out there? Because sometimes yeah. those videos. We don't want to be public if you are having um, real conversations about topics, issues, contentious issues. I would think that my students wouldn't want themselves put online, even if they didn't have their name on there. They don't want to put themselves out there the same way other people might. Well, and there's also this idea as well around um, students who have gone home and might not be able to talk about these things, right? Where their views... Um, beliefs, um, what the conclusions they have drawn about themselves, about politics, about religion, about gender identity, about any of these kinds of contentious topics, even about, say, biology and evolution, mm -hmm. right? That they can be going home and they can no longer talk about these things, right? They can talk because their parents are listening, mm -hmm. for better or for worse, you know? Um, and so you're sometimes putting students in dangerous situations or unsafe situations um, in, in when you are demanding that they participate, right, in these right. kinds of discussions. There's also, um, we have international students, right, where it is illegal for them to discuss or read or partake 
um, when they're back home in um, in certain activities, right? We think of students from China, um, uh, you know, and, and other authoritarian uh, countries where, you know, they're, they're li- it is literally breaking the law to discuss and take part in the class, right? Right. Um, and so like, you don't want that recorded. You don't even want that streamed. And, you know, people are like, oh, we'll just ask them to use a VPN. And it's like, yeah, but that's, you know, I mean, there's, there's certain implications of that too. And so like, there's this whole, you know, there's, there's, there's the accessibility issue in terms of just bandwidth, but then there's also the, uh, accessibility issue in terms of legality, in terms of, um, home life situation, um, you know, I, I think it was um, uh, Tressy and Rox, Tressy McMillan Cottom and Roxanne Gay in their podcast Here to Slay. Um, they were talking. They did two special episodes around COVID nineteen in education, and um, you know, I don't remember who said it, but it was like just because they have two parents and a roof over their head doesn't necessarily mean that that's safe, right? Right. And so we, we make all of these assumptions um, about our students um, and, you know, that that's not necessarily the reality and, and they don't necessarily have to disclose that to us. And I don't necessarily want them to disclose that to us, but then how do we bring video into their lives, either synchronous or asynchronous in a way that's safe for them. Right. Um, yeah. in a way that's accessible. So I, I worry a lot about the safety too of, of our students when it comes to these kinds of things. Thanks for bringing that up. I do think there are ways to do that. Um, I think of like, I've started putting things uh, as an educator, I started putting things on Vimeo, which is ad free. It's not YouTube. Uh, they have advanced privacy options as an option. So other ethical alternatives and resources. There's also like things like PeerTube, which is uh, people can share open source ad free video hosting. So I think about places that might still be accessed because my learners that I teach now are in different parts of the world that they can't get things on social media sites that are typically um, North American, U.S. centric. Um, so I also worry about um, just if I'm getting the message across in just video, can they access it in different points? So why couldn't I take from a video that's short, just the audio clip, just the PowerPoint if I'm using one or visual, like why do I just have that in a how-to guide, like a job aid is what I use for my learners. So how are you thinking about video? And when you, because I know that you help and support lots of faculty think about their digital lives and their teaching, what advice do you give to them, whether it's using a web conference platform or creating a video for learning? What are some things that you kind of give advice on? So one of the things that, one of the, the central sort of, tenants that I try to get them to think about is I have them think about how they maximize their time together. And one of the ways that I have them do that is I give them a, I called it the seminar adaptation template. And I basically just stole it from the K to 12, right? Where K to 12 have a very long history and culture of lesson planning. We do not have a culture of lesson planning in higher education. And so I basically made this sheet that was, that divided up their course in 15 minute increments and uh, with columns and say, okay, what's the activity you're doing? What's the type of engagement? And what I meant by engagement, is it student to student? Is it student to faculty or is it student to content? Um, uh, What's the learning outcome that this is aligned to? Like, why are you doing this? And then how important is this done that this be done synchronously, right? 
and getting them to think about what is just straight up content delivery. And maybe that could be a short video instead that the students watch ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe it's an activity that they can do asynchronously outside of the class after the discussion. Um, but getting them to really prioritize what are the things that absolutely have to happen when we're together? And what does that together time look like? versus what could be done asynchronously, either through video, through podcast, through, um, you know, uh, active reading. You know, we have so many great engagement tools. You know, I think of hypothesis for annotating readings. Um, you know, that even uh, Minnesota came out, uh, has for a long time has had a, a, a free tool called Video Ant, mm-hmm. and it's a video annotation tool. It's used, it works just with YouTube, but, you know, that's fine. Um, for some, so the, you can have that engagement still in an asynchronous way where they're, you're creating opportunities for students asynchronously on their own time, in their own ways to engage with the content materials. That way, when you do come together, usually through Zoom, because that's what we pay for at our institution, um, you know, to think really critically about that time together and say, how are we going to spend this time? Is it going to be breakout rooms? Is it absolutely essential that everybody has their camera on? Why um, is it absolutely essential that, you know, what are you, what are you doing together? What are you trying to accomplish during your time together? And so that's one of the ways that I, that I'm thinking about it in terms of um, accessibility is, is like, what are all of those other things that can happen elsewhere on a student's own time? And what are the things that we want absolutely to have happen live? Um, and, and what do those live things look like? Cause it doesn't look like a classroom anymore. So what, what are we doing with this space? So that's, that's the sort of, that's the sort of activities that those are the kinds of um, activities I want um, faculty to think about. And, you know, it, it it comes down to when we're in a classroom, we're the faculty are the arbiters of engagement, right? Like that's one of the things that they say they really miss about video mm-hmm. as, as a mode is that, well, I don't know whatever, you know, I get a feel for the room, right? I can't get a feel for the room when I'm online. I can tell when people are paying attention when they're not. I can see when they're engaged and they're not. And so in this, and and this doesn't just go for video, this goes for online, generally online learning is um, they are no longer the arbiters. They're the facilitators of it. They're the designers of it. Like, so all of the work has to take place in very careful design decisions around accessibility, around maximizing the time together, around learning outcomes. And that's just, again, something we're not used to doing in higher education. And so that's why I say like the video became a crutch right? Right. Where I can just do everything that I always do in class online on Zoom or Google Hangout or Meets or whatever they're calling it now, or, you know, WebEx. Wherever the kids Uh, are on the web conferencing. And it's interesting you say that, that I am like, so I am a designer um, and I've always thought of this in higher ed and and ed technology is think about yourself being a small producer. Like you should be creating like a story line, a story about what you're going to produce What's that learning object's going to look like? And can it be reusable? Um, in marketing, they call it evergreen. A reusable yeah. piece of material in a, in a high-quality video, whether it's you talking head, talking about something. Like, I even encourage some of my faculty and teachers to think about if they have a green screen, they could have one. Like, I usually have some one behind. Or if they want to even do a screencast on something they want to show online or about the course, 
Mm-hmm. Capture that in good quality, and you can use it every semester for that course. And then you have reusable objects in other spaces. You might talk about a concept or present an idea. Um, so I always think about um, think about it as a small mini video production. <laughs> and what would you do to do it the best you could? And that way you don't have to do it again later. So it does take a lot of planning, design, upfront things, but then you mm-hmm. have it later and it's reusable, it's accessible, it's downloadable, and you can have in multiple formats so you can pick it out of your course and use it somewhere yeah. else. Yep. And one of the things, so I was, I was talking with, um, you know, we've been working a lot with, of, of course, with faculty all summer and all of that and trying to plan for the fall. And so we were, uh, in one case, we were talking about doing exactly that. Like, could you mm-hmm. just record your lecture ahead of time right? And have a script and it'll go much faster. Trust me, something that usually takes 50 minutes is not going to take 50 minutes if you're just doing it voice over PowerPoint. Um, And then, you know, then you can jump right into the discussion once you get in because, you know, we use Panopto so you can have, they can do discussions in Panopto. I hate the name, but anyways, they do discussions (laughs) in in Panopto that you, you can annotate the video, you can have conversations, you can ask questions. You also get metrics if that's something that matters, because how do I know if they've watched the videos? Well, they're metrics, you know. Um, But so I had this faculty member say, no, well, what I actually want to do instead is I'll go through my PowerPoint presentation and then whatever we don't have time to cover during our class time together, I'll record that. And I said, (laughs) okay, but then how are you going to reuse that? Like, that's not, that that's not reusable. And she's like, well, why would I want to reuse it? We're just going back into the classroom, uh, you know, again in the spring. And I was like, "Mm." Like, and I think that that's one of the things like people who do online learning or do online learning regularly, we think that way, right? We think about reusability in this particular moment. It's been really difficult to get faculty who don't typically teach online to think about reusability because they're just in their minds. This is a temporary thing. I'm just doing this once and I'm never going to do it again. So why would I produce anything that could be reused? Yeah, and, and it's interesting you say that. Um, the other way video is used and is talked about in this chapter a little bit is around students' creation of videos. And I actually mm-hmm. taught a couple classes where it was pretty high video impact. So I have some of these tools and resources like a green screen and some like weird like holding of mic stands and camera stands because my students would do presentations. And I had the same class online as I did in person. And I would do encourage like little DIY hacks for my learners to learn. And it was more about, less about the quality of the video and more about the what they learned about their self-presentation, um, mm-hmm. things they would reflect on. Uh, so I didn't care if their lighting wasn't great. We talked a bit about that. Um, but it was about getting a message across, sharing a really good story in a different way. And then they had another one of their choice. And all of these wrap into what's coming up in the next chapter. This is my prelude to the next podcast, is portfolios, the e- portfolio idea of what do you walk away from as a learner in a course that you might have created and how can you show to like I don't know a future employer a colleague something you've created and be really proud of and video is one way to showcase that right because we're Mm going to have these online selves in some shape or form so what they choose to create 
what if they came out of a class creating a really cool artifact, um, a video documenting something, a video of presentation that they're they're really proud of? I don't know. So I think about video in that sense of are our students being creators because maybe that's something they'd be interested in doing and offering it in different ways is what I was thinking about um, and how they could present, I guess. And video is one of them. It's not the only one, but I thought that was something I was thinking of lately. Yeah. No. And I mean, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir on this one, right? Like I've worked at domain of one's own schools. And so we were all about creation um, and student driven creation. And uh, I think the video essay can be a really powerful tool. I don't think that, you know, I'm a comp lit person. My PhD is in comparative literature. Obviously I love text. I write, um, my default is text, but you know, it doesn't just have to be text, right? Um, you can make a really compelling argument using multimodal composition techniques, which includes video essays. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't buy into the digital native myth, obviously, but our students are very often creating content, whether they know it or not, right? They are on TikTok creating content. Um, they're on YouTube creating content. Um, you know, even if they're mimicking their, you know, the, the people that they admire on that, but that's what we all do, right? Even the writers, we, we start writing by mimicking the style of the writers that we admire. Um, and our students are mimicking the styles of the TikTokers or YouTubers that they admire and watch, um, which is fascinating to me because I'm just like, oh, they, he sounds exactly like that YouTuber I, he watches obsessively. <laughs> huh. Okay. So. That's a thing. Uh, and, and I mean, TikTok is all about, you know, the mimicking, right? The TikTok yeah. dance. Well, we're going to do the TikTok or the TikTok challenges. And so they're, they're already thinking about these things, even if, um, you know, even if it is in informal spaces. And, and you know, it, it reminds me, it plays me on mind when I taught writing and used to talk about code switching with them, right? Mm -hmm. Where they were like, well, I don't know how to, and I'm like, you do know how to it because you wouldn't describe your weekend to your best friend in the same way that you would describe your weekend to your grandmother, right? Yeah. And so it's thinking about those lessons that they've learned doing TikTok, doing YouTube, because they are picking up some of the skills, right? They are picking up some of those, the, some of the ways to think critically maybe not critically, but think about how do, how do I make a good video, right? What makes a good TikTok video? What makes a good YouTuber YouTube video? Right. And they're trying to mimic those things. So then how do you get those sorts of lessons, you know, surface them, make them think about them, and then have them transfer that into academic work, right? Because yeah. they, I think they are transferable skills uh, in that sort of sense. But, you know, I, I mean, I, I love it. I, you know, I... I teach an online class. I've taught this for this online class for a couple of years now. I've ditched the essay altogether. All of their projects are multimodal or video projects. Cool. Um, the only writing they do is reflective writing, where they reflect on the process of these kinds of things. And um, you know, I just there's the level of engagement uh, is much much higher. Uh, I find because they have this sort of freedom and flexibility to play with the how they how they deliver the content, how they deliver their learning um, that they don't have. If I just said you have to write an essay and have seven references and, you know, all that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Um, in teaching courses or doing trainings now for folks, I will say I am cognizant of not always having video, but being an instructor or facilitator, um, video and other media um, do bring you into the class. Like it's a way to develop rapport. It's a way that my mm -hmm. students, my learners, my participants actually engage. And whether it's they see me once or they hear my voice, um, there's things that we, they pick up from video of instructors. And there is that social presence. Um, I love that like Patrick Lowenthal and others talk about the ways you can have presence online and video is one and mm -hmm. and we know it's popular because 2005 videos came out and that informed what we love and do now is streaming services in all areas of our life of video so yeah. Video just encouraged more video of streaming and it's going to be around. And I love how you think and encourage others to be more thoughtful and intentional of, well, how do you want to come together in real time, asynchronously, uh, synchronously, the different modes of video doesn't have to be the same. And so if yeah. we could think about that in our pedagogy and our planning and design, I think that'd be fantastically. So thank you so much for sharing some of your thoughts. So we're not, down like hating the video totally we just want people to be a bit more clever with it a, a, a bit more as you said purposeful right yeah. a little bit more purposeful a little bit more mindful um you know really just uh thinking about it in like why am i using video is video the best way that i can be doing this thing or is there another way that i could be doing it um you know, and, and maybe it is, maybe it is social reading instead, right? Maybe we go back to text mm -hmm. um, for some of this. There doesn't all have to be video. Um, if you're just reading PowerPoint slides, why don't you just give them the slides that they can read on their own, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, it's, uh, does it have to be? Are there interesting visuals or can we just sit and listen to it? Um, especially now with everybody with screen fatigue and Zoom fatigue, like what could be audio only? You know, there is still, um, you know, there are studies that, that have shown that even that the students in online courses, even completely asynchronous ones, just the, having the ability to see the, the faculty member's face in a video and see their, mm -hmm. you know, um, is, is um, helps with engagement and they report being more engaged and more likely to, to well, but there's also something really intimate, um, which is, I think, why podcasting is, has seen a, a, such an explosion. There's something intimate of having somebody right in your ears, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and so, again, it's thinking about the, the, the wide array of media uh, that we have access to, to be able to create, to um, share with our students the tools that exist to allow students to be able to engage with that material, where video is just one of many ways that we are engaging with our students and not a crutch to become the only way that we're engaging with our students and the only way we're measuring engagement with our students. So I think that that's, that's something I want faculty to really think about is, is that there, there's a whole spectrum of media that we can use, not just video. I love that. Um, and I might be biased because I have a few podcasts, but I do think, and it's not podcasts are actually mentioned in any chapters, but I do think video has influenced uh, what we do and create. And there's, this has been 15 years coming of video in ed tech. Um, maybe we're getting there and we can do videos better. And it's not better production or higher quality. It's uh, being more meaningful, purposeful, and intentional with those videos. And 
Uh, anyone listening to this, if you have suggestions, you can tweet at Martin Weller. Uh, he would love to know more. <laughs> and, and talk to us. Uh, Lee and I, I will put a link to uh, Lee and I's Twitter <laughs> handle in the show notes and maybe a couple of things we mentioned. Um, this reminds me, as you talked about podcasts, like I think about, uh, I listen to, and being a border kid in Canada, I follow the Reading Rainbow on public broadcast and now lavar burton reads for adults is something i'm thinking about these days so he's got seven seasons of reading um, short stories to adults so i think about how meaningful some of these uh read aloud experiences have been it's very intimate with maybe a family member maybe a teacher read to you or maybe you're listening to stories in podcast format now i do think there is a way that um, this media could be multimodal and really enhance the learning. And I'm thinking about um, a really good book, and I was just looking at my bookshelf here, is um, just the e-learning. Here it is. E-learning and the science of instruction. So proven guidelines for consumers and designers of multimedia learning. That's by Clark and Mayer. It's a really good book um, that talks about the fourth edition. Um, that talks about how we can be better with some of our yeah, visuals to audio to videos. Um, but there's more out there that like, I'm still learning. So I don't know about yeah. you. <laughs> Always and be learning. I, yeah, well, and I think that that is, um, again, I'm going to go back to, to, to here to slay with, um, with Tressie McMillan-Cobbin and Roxanne Gay, because the one that they talked about about higher ed, and Tressie teaches digital sociology, she teaches in mm -hmm. online programs. But, you know, I think that this is where the, the friction comes in and, and where faculty feel this frustration is, you know, she said it herself, and, and I've heard this, she's not a technologist, right? She doesn't want to be a technologist. She didn't get into this for being a technologist. Um, and now there's this expectation that we are asking faculty to do good video production and now do, you know, audio production. Do you know how to edit your podcast? Do you know, you know, yeah. um, and, and it's a lot on top of research, on top of students, on top of service, on top of life and COVID, um, you know, and, and this just goes to, to the whole underlying, like teaching is devalued in a lot of ways in higher education. And so there isn't a lot of, um, impetus to stay on top of the technology, to stay on top of these sorts of skills. I mean, means that I'm always going to have a job, um, but it also means that like there, there's, um, you know, that even those little things like learning how to use visuals better, yeah. right? Like that's, that for a lot of people, like I don't use visuals very well at all and it's hard, right? It's hard for me. Um, and so that there's, I think that that's one of the, what are the biggest challenges for using all of this technology, be it video, be it audio, be it like just, you know, graphic design, mm -hmm. any of that kind of stuff is that it's, it's not what we were trained in. It's not necessarily what we were always interested in as academics. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and it is a lot of uncompensated labor that we are asking faculty to do on top of everything else. Um, so it, it's, you know, I understand the challenge of that and I understand the frustration of it. And like, I'm lucky that this is my job and I get to nerd out over it and mm -hmm. learn about video and learn about podcasting. And, you know, um, but, but I also get that a lot of faculty, like that it's just, that's, they don't have enough spoons. That is a bunch of spoons too many for what is on their plate. 
Um, so, you know, the, the criticisms that we often hear around faculty being Luddites, faculty being disinterested in improving their pedagogy, um, you know, I think it, even just my, my accusation of, well, I'm going to use Zoom as a, as a crutch, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's probably a really important crutch at this particular juncture, right? Yeah. Like, you know, like, what are the battles that I, what do I have enough spoons for? And well, I might not have enough spoons to completely rethink and reimagine my course within a a short period of time. But I think when we talk about accessibility, I think that we often, we prioritize the students, which is really important, but we don't necessarily take the faculty's accessibility uh, into consideration. Um, You know, what sort of technology do they have access to, but also what sort of support that they have how are they being rewarded? Right. Um, I think of all of these um, faculty, f- women faculty who have, are also now responsible for homeschooling their kids who are, you know, carrying the extra load of this third shift. And oh, by the way, learn all of this technology and become an expert video producer. Um, you know, it's yeah. a lot. It's I think there, I think there is. There's lots of value for educators, learners, and researchers. However, without the time the resources, or even the training and support, like you said, um, it's not going to be as democratic as we think it can be. And so that that's a good call out to leave on and say, if you are thinking about whether it's video, and we've explained it to other media, because that's been kind of wrapped into video here, um, how are you supporting those faculty members, those researchers, um, your students? Because you can't just expect them to flip on a camera and hit record. I think there, it requires a bit more um, planning and support than we ever recognize. And I think that's a good call out, Lee. So thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. So thanks for joining, Lee. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And thank you for doing this. This was a lot of fun. You've been listening to Between the Chapters with your host, Laura Pisquini. For more information or to subscribe to Between the Chapters and 25 Years of Ed Tech, visit 25years.opened.ca.